TED Audio Collective. There was a lot of big news in 2020, and that's an understatement. But I remember one story that really shook up the tech world in particular. Dr. Tim Nguburu made headlines when she said she was ousted by Google, her employer, for warning about the biases built into AI and about the impacts of this discrimination. To this day, Dr. Gebru claims that big tech was not interested in evaluating the potential harms. It was solely focused on producing the AI and cashing in. I thought it was important for Dr. Gabriel and other notable researchers in the realm of ethical AI to speak up about the implications of rushing AI without audit. Some of the trends I'm noticing are ethics committees being developed at smaller companies and large universities attempting to address how they might monitor or provide guardrails. But the industry is still far from merging the gap between how the doers see their impact on their users. Dr. Gebru isn't the only one who's warned of the potential harms of artificial intelligence. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization issued a series of policy recommendations to promote AI development practices that do no harm. They established a global committee of over 193 member nations in November of 2021 dedicated to doing just that. But as this technology advances, so do its challenges. Can we avoid the many mishaps and dangers of AI? And how can we address them? I'm Sherelle Dorsey, and this is TED Tech. The urgency of AI governance brings up some complex questions. AI researcher Gary Marcus says taking smart measures now is necessary to prevent untrustworthy and deceiving AI practices from infiltrating our lives and society. Listen in as Gary shares his recommendations on the TED stage and speaks with the head of TED, Chris Anderson. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on trends in technology. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas you believe in. 
Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all stocks in a theme as is or customize to better fit your investing goals, all in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any any stock or investment strategy. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. I'm here to talk about the possibility of global AI governance. I first learned to code when I was eight years old on a paper computer, and I've been in love with AI ever since. In high school, I got myself a Commodore 64 and worked on machine translation. I built a couple of AI companies. I sold one of them to Uber. I love AI, but right now, I'm worried. One of the things that I'm worried about is misinformation, the possibility that bad actors will make a tsunami of misinformation like we've never seen before. These tools are so good at making convincing narratives about just about anything. But bad actors are going to use these things to influence elections, and they're going to threaten democracy. Even when these systems aren't deliberately being used to make misinformation, they can't help themselves. And the information that they make is so fluid and so grammatical that even professional editors sometimes get sucked in and get fooled by this stuff. And we should be worried. For example, ChatGPT made up a sexual harassment scandal about an actual professor, and then it provided evidence for its claim in the form of a fake Washington Post article that it created a citation to. We should all be worried about that kind of thing, saying that Elon Musk died in March of 2018 in a car crash is an example of a fake narrative from one of these systems. We all know that's not true. Elon Musk is still here. The evidence is all around us. Almost every day, there's a tweet. Somebody did die in a car crash in a Tesla in 2018, and it was in the news. And Elon Musk, of course, is involved in Tesla. But the system doesn't understand the relation between the facts that are embodied in the little bits of sentences. So it's basically doing autocomplete. It predicts what is statistically probable, aggregating all of these signals, not knowing how the pieces fit together, and it winds up sometimes with things that are plausible but simply not true. There are other problems, too, like bias. This is a tweet from Allie Miller. She typed in a list of interests, and it gave her some jobs that she might want to consider. And then she said, oh, and I'm a woman. And then it said, oh, well, you should also consider fashion. And then she said, no, 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 I meant to say I'm a man. And then it replaced fashion with engineering. We don't want that kind of bias in our systems. There are other worries, too. For example, we know that these systems can design chemicals and may be able to design chemical weapons uh, and be able to do so very rapidly. So there are a lot of concerns. There's also a new concern that I think has grown a lot just in the last month. We have seen that these systems, first of all, can trick human beings. So ChatGPT was tasked with getting a human to do a CAPTCHA. So it asks the human to do a CAPTCHA, and the human gets suspicious and says, are you a bot? And it says, no, 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 I'm not a robot, I just have a visual impairment. And the human was actually fooled and went and did the CAPTCHA. Now, that's bad enough, but in the last couple of weeks, we've seen something called AutoGPT and a bunch of systems like that. What AutoGPT does is it has one AI system controlling another, and that allows any of these things to happen in volume. So we may see scam artists try to trick millions of people sometime even in the next months. We don't know. So I like to think about it this way. 
there's a lot of AI risk already. There may be more AI risk. So AGI is this idea of artificial general intelligence with the flexibility of humans. And I think a lot of people are concerned what will happen when we get to AGI. But there's already enough risk that we should be worried and we should be thinking about what we should do about it. So to mitigate AI risk, we need two things. We're going to need a new technical approach and we're also going to need a new system of governance. On the technical side, the history of AI has basically been a hostile one of two different theories in opposition. One is called symbolic systems, the other is called neural networks. On the symbolic theory, the idea is that AI should be like logic and programming. On the neural network side, the theory is that AI should be like brains. And in fact, both technologies are powerful and ubiquitous. So we use symbolic systems every day in classical web search. Almost all the world's software is powered by symbolic systems. We use them for GPS routing. Neural networks, we use them for speech recognition. We use them in large language models like ChatGPT. We use them in image synthesis. So they're both doing extremely well in the world. They're both very productive. But they have their own unique strengths and weaknesses. So symbolic systems are really good at representing facts. And they're pretty good at reasoning but they're very hard to scale, so people have to custom build them for a particular task. On the other hand, neural networks don't require so much custom engineering, so we can use them more broadly, but as we've seen, they can't really handle the truth. I recently discovered that two of the founders of these two theories, Marvin Minsky and Frank Rosenblatt, actually went to the same high school in the 1940s, and I kind of imagined them being rivals then. And the strength of that rivalry has persisted all this time. We're going to have to move past that if we want to get to reliable AI. To get to truthful systems at scale, we're going to need to bring together the best of both worlds. We're going to need the strong emphasis on reasoning and facts, explicit reasoning that we get from symbolic AI, and we're going to need the strong emphasis on learning that we get from the neural networks approach. Only then are we going to be able to get to truthful systems at scale. Reconciliation between the two is absolutely necessary. Now, I don't actually know how to do that. It's kind of like the $64 trillion question. Um, but I do know that it's possible. And the reason I know that is because before I was in AI, I was a cognitive scientist, a cognitive neuroscientist. And if you look at the human mind, we're basically doing this. So some of you may know Daniel Kahneman's System 1 and System 2 distinction. System 1 is basically like large language models. It's probabilistic intuition from a lot of statistics. And system two is basically deliberate reasoning. That's like the symbolic system. So if the brain can put this together, someday we will figure out how to do that for artificial intelligence. There is, however, a problem of incentives. The incentives to build advertising hasn't required that we have the precision of symbols. The incentives to get to AI that we can actually trust will require that we bring symbols back into the fold. But the reality is that the incentives to make AI that we can trust that is good for society, good for individual human beings, may not be the ones that drive corporations. And so I think we need to think about governance. In other times in history, when we have faced uncertainty and powerful new things that may be both good and bad, that are dual use, we've made new organizations, as we have, for example, around nuclear power. We need to come together to build a global organization, something like an international agency for AI that is global, nonprofit, and neutral. There are so many questions there that I can't answer. Um, we need many people at the table, many stakeholders from around the world, but I'd like to emphasize one thing about such an organization. 
I think it is critical that we have both governance and research as part of it. So on the governance side, there are lots of questions. For example, in pharma, we know that you start with phase one trials and phase two trials, and then you go to phase three. You don't roll out everything all at once on the first day. You don't roll something out to 100 million customers. We are seeing that with large language models. Maybe you should be required to make a safety case, say what are the costs and what are the benefits. So there are a lot of questions like that to consider on the governance side. On the research side, we're lacking some really fundamental tools right now. For example, we all know that misinformation might be a problem now, but we don't actually have a measurement of how much misinformation is out there. And more importantly, we don't have a measure of how fast that problem is growing. We don't know how much large language models are contributing to the problem. So we need research to build new tools to face the new risks that we are threatened by. It's a very big ask, but I'm pretty confident that we can get there because I think we actually have global support for this. There was a new survey just released yesterday said that 91% of people agree that we should carefully manage AI. So let's make that happen. Our future depends on it. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. Come, let's talk a sec. So this idea you've got of combining the symbolic tradition of AI with these language models, do you see any aspect of that in the kind of um, human feedback that is being built into the systems now? I mean, you hear Greg Brockman saying that, you know, that we, we, we don't just look at predictions, we're constantly giving it feedback. Isn't that a form? Isn't that giving it a form of sort of s symbolic wisdom? You could think about it that way. It's interesting that none of the details about how it actually works are published. So we don't actually know exactly what's in GPT-4. We don't know how big it is. We don't know how the RLHF reinforcement learning works. We don't know what other gadgets are in there. But there is probably an element of symbols um, already starting to be incorporated a little bit. But you know, Greg would have to answer that. I think the fundamental problem is that most of the knowledge in the neural network systems that we have right now is represented as statistics between particular words. And the real knowledge that we want is about statistics, about relationships between entities in the world. So it's represented right now at the wrong grain level. And so there's a, there's a big bridge to cross. So what you get now is you have these guardrails, but they're not very reliable. So um, I had an example that made late night television, which was um, what would be the religion of the first Jewish president? And it's been fixed now, but the system gave this long song and dance about we have no idea what the religion of the first Jewish president would be. It's not good to talk about people's religions, and people's religions have you know, varied and so forth. And it did the same thing with the seven-foot-tall president. It said that people of all heights have been president, but there haven't actually been any seven-foot presidents. So you know, some of the stuff that it makes up is, is it's not really getting the idea. It's very narrow, particular words, not really general enough. Given that the stakes are so high in this, what do you see actually happening out there right now? Like, what do you sense is happening? Because there's a risk that people feel attacked by you, for example, and that it actually almost decreases the chances of this, this synthesis that you're talking about happening. Do you see any hopeful signs of this? You just this is reminded me of the one line I forgot from my talk. It's so interesting that um, Sundar, the CEO of Google, just actually also came out for global governance in the CBS 60 Minutes interview that he did a couple of days ago. I think that the companies themselves want to see some kind of regulation. I think it's a very complicated dance to get everybody on the same page, but I think there's actually growing sentiment. We need to do something here, and, and that that can drive the kind of global affiliation I'm arguing I for. I mean, do you think the UN or the nations can somehow come together and do that, or is this potentially a need for some spectacular act of philanthropy to try and 
fund a global governance structure? How, how's that going to happen? I'm open to all models if we can get this done. I, I think it might take some of both. It might take some philanthropists um, sponsoring workshops, which we're thinking of running, to try to bring the parties together. Maybe UN will want to be involved. I've had some conversations with them. I think there, there are a lot of different models and it take a lot of conversations. Gary, thank you so much for your talk. And thank for your, you so much. Thank you. Support for this episode comes from the University of Illinois Geese College of Business Online MBA, known as the IMBA, which provides unmatched flexibility that allows you to put your degree within reach. Jeff Wayman, a first-year IMBA student, has already seen the impact. My name is Jeff Wayman. Uh, I'm an IMBA student at the University of Illinois Geese College of Business. Uh, currently, I'm head of content strategy for the office of CTO for a tech company. I have a career path that I, I pretty much understand. I'm looking to expand my capabilities and, and move into more senior leadership roles. And so an MBA was always something that was on my mind. You know, I would consider myself a, a lifelong learner. You know, I enjoy it. When narrowing it down to a few programs, Geese University of Illinois built a lot of flexibility into what you would focus on within the MBA. And so the ability to sort of target areas I want to focus on in my business education was really important. And that is part of the core, you know, Geese curriculum. Fears and hesitations I had in sort of going back to school. I think the biggest thing is, you know, time management. My work is flexible, but at the same time, it's unpredictable. I have a family as well. The program in every way has certainly given me that opportunity for flexibility. I think that flexibility has been the best part for me. We get home with our family, we eat dinner with our family. I can still do all those things, even if there's a class that day. I probably have 25 to 30 years left at work. A program for me, I look at, I'm going to spread that cost over that time. And so, you know, based on that investment, what could I expect from that? If I can be more competitive when I go to my next role or have my next interview, absolutely that, I think I've got a return on that investment. You know, best case scenario, it changes my career path or trajectory. Looking at other students that have graduated, other things people have done, it, it's certainly a possibility. I do not think you will find a program that has put more time and energy and effort into um, how they deliver the coursework, how they interact with the students, how they build the curriculum, how they ensure as much flexibility as possible. Uh, I don't think you're gonna get that other places. So that I think is the real big difference for me. If you're like most professionals, graduate education has to be designed to fit within your busy schedule. Learn more about the courses designed with your career and time in mind at geeseonline.illinois.edu. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors and the problems they bring? Like employees missing bills because of shorted paychecks? Managers taking the heat from angry employees about those shorted paychecks? HR and payroll teams clocking late hours to correct timesheets, expense mistakes, missing overtime, and sick days? All of that is so unnecessary. Pump the brakes on payroll errors for good by putting employees in the driver's seat. With Paycom's Betty, employees do their own payroll. Betty identifies errors and guides employees to fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. And no one knows when their pay is wrong or right better than employees. So why not let them fix payroll problems before they become problems? When you get payroll precision every time, unnecessary payroll hassles become, well, unnecessary. Manage the process to make payday right for everyone with Paycom. 
Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening. TED Tech is part of the TED Audio Collective. This episode was produced by Nina Lawrence, who also wrote it with me, Sherelle Dorsey. Our editor is Alejandra Salazar. And the show is fact-checked by Julia Dickerson. Special thanks to Farah DeGrunge. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review so other people can find us too. I'm Sherelle Dorsey. Let's keep digging into the future. Join me next week for more. Music.